A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, two novels. Celeste Ng on her Amazon Book of the Year winning debut, Everything I Never Told You, and then Ben Ockrey on his long-awaited novel, The Age of Magic. Celeste Ng grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Shaker Heights, Ohio, in a family of scientists. Her fiction and essays have appeared in One Story, Bellevue Literary Review and elsewhere, and she is a recipient of the Pushcart Prize. Her debut novel, which has just been named an Amazon Book of the Year, is Everything I Never Told You. So, Celeste, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'll ask you, first of all, to describe what the book is about. It takes place in the 1970s, and it focuses on a mixed-race family. The father is a Chinese-American, and the mother is a white American. They have three children, and at the beginning of the novel, their favorite daughter, Lydia, who is 16, disappears and is found drowned in the local lake, and this causes the family to confront a lot of sort of painful secrets that they've been hiding for a long time. And that's literally not giving anything away. There's no spoiler there. Literally the first line of the book is, Lydia is dead. Yes. We know right from the beginning. Right. No spoilers in what I just said. It does take the family a a couple of chapters to discover that, but the reader knows right from the beginning. But were you ever tempted, in in the writing of the novel, were you ever tempted to make it more of a mystery for the audience as well? Actually, yes. In in earlier drafts of the novel, um, up until the very last draft of the novel, the reader was a little bit in the dark about that as well. Um, The novel used to begin a bit differently. It used to say, at first, they don't know where Lydia has gone. And neither the reader nor the family found out that Lydia had died until maybe 40, 50 pages in. And as I worked on revising the novel, I started to realize that that information needed to be upfront, at least for the reader. The reader needed to sort of know what was going on and be able to see a little bit farther than the family could. So let's talk about that family then. So if we can, we'll go through the various family members. Um, James, the father, as you just said, James is um, is a Chinese-American. He's a second generation. His parents are first-generation Chinese immigrants. James, he wants to fit in, doesn't he? His main preoccupation in life is fitting in. Yes, I think that's that's a very good assessment of him. So his parents were immigrants. He was born in America, but he's, I think, always very conscious of his status as an Asian man, a Chinese-American man, in an area where there aren't very many other Asians in the small town that this family lives in. They're the only Asian family in the community. And I think that James really feels that um, very intensely. And that sort of motivates a lot of what he does. 
He's a professor of American history at the university, um, and that in some ways is he's actually got a specialty in cowboys. He teaches a class on cowboys. It's a way of sort of finding a connection to America and being an expert in it. And his expectations for his daughter as well are that she fit in. He really wants her to fit in and sort of be socially accepted and um, be accepted into the community in a way that he feels he never has been. So you're talking about what he wants from Lydia and what he wants from Lydia most of all is that she will be, she will fit in, but more than that, she will be popular. She will become, I guess she will become more American. Right. And there's a sort of wish fulfillment there, I think, because that was something that never happened for him. And he really wants that for Lydia. He really wants her to have lots of friends and to be very popular and to be very social in a way that he wasn't and isn't even as an adult. And Marilyn, his wife, Lydia's mother, she's not Chinese. She's white American. And she also has projections that she puts onto Lydia, expectations of her own. Right. Very different ones, though, um, but a, a similar feeling maybe to James or similar rationale. Marilyn had always wanted to go into medicine and to become a doctor. That was sort of her childhood dream. Her own mother was a high school uh, home economics teacher, so teaching cooking and sewing and all that sort of stuff. And Marilyn, growing up in Virginia, had, had really wanted to do something different than what she saw her mother doing and wanted to go into medicine went to Radcliffe, studied, and then sort of, as was often the case at that time, I think, fell in love, you know, got pregnant, got married. Um, she meets James and gets pregnant and they get married and she kind of gives up on that um, career path and, and that always sort of haunts her. And that sort of frames her expectations for her daughter, Lydia. Um, she sort of hopes that Lydia will go on and, and be able to fulfill all those dreams that she didn't get a chance to. And Lydia's She's one of three children, so there's Nathan, Lydia and Hannah, and she's the middle child as well. She's not the oldest. What is it about Lydia that the two fixate on? I think um, partly it's that both of them, both parents very strongly associate Lydia with her mother. So her mother, of course, um, really self-identifies with her. Um, she looks a lot like her mother. Um, she's got her, her mother's blue eyes, which is a thing that makes the two of them look even more similar. And so for Marilyn, the mother, I think she really sort of sees her herself and her daughter. And um, that's part of why she's sort of fixated on her. Um, the two older children in the family are, are a bit, quite a bit older than the youngest child who comes a bit later. And for James, the father, I think that he also really sort of sees his wife and his daughter. He sees sort of her Americanness, her beauty, um, what he perceives as her comfort in, you know, in the country and the place that they live in that he's never felt. And he, he sort of sees that in his wife and he hopes that his daughter will have that too. So I think for both of them, they really look at her almost as a, a reprise of their mother. So Nath, the son, he's the, the oldest of the children. He's just recently got into Harvard. In the time frame of Lydia's disappearance, they're all aware that he's got into Harvard. Marilyn pretty much ignores him. James James sees himself in Nath, doesn't he? And yeah. I think he, he obviously dislikes that. He obviously dislikes seeing himself in his son. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. That I think, you know, Marilyn is, is in some ways she's so focused on Lydia and sort of her dreams for Lydia that Nate doesn't get a lot of attention from her, even even as a young child, and certainly not as he gets older and, and more independent. And like you said, James, I think, sees himself in Nathan just as he sees Marilyn in Lydia. And for him, that's not a positive thing. All the things that he doesn't like about himself, he sees in his son, you know, his son being sort of shy or his son being sort of more intellectual and less popular, um, his son sort of looking maybe more like an outsider than he thinks his daughter does because she looks a little bit more white. So all those sorts of 
things in some ways turn James away from Nath and cause a little bit of friction between them. And then Hannah, the last child, Hannah, who, as you said, she comes later on, and in fact she's connected with something else, another significant event that happens in the book that we can talk about after. Yeah, so Hannah, Hannah's quite a bit younger, yeah. So Hannah, I mean, I was the youngest of five children. I really felt for Hannah, who is pretty much unobserved. And yet she's possibly the most perceptive of all of the children. She sees what's going on more than anybody, doesn't she? She does. And I feel, I'm glad to hear you say that because I was also the youngest in my family. I had one much older sister. And so, you know, I remember a little bit of what it's like to be the youngest, that you look up to everybody else and, and everyone is not necessarily looking back down at you, which can feel a little lonely sometimes, but can also give you a vantage point that I think you get to see a lot more than other people do sometimes as the youngest. And that's very much Hannah's role. She's sort of a um, trying to figure out what's going on in her family, does a lot of hiding under tables or sort of behind furniture and listening in and stealing little trinkets from her family, I think, is a way of trying to understand what's happening with them. We don't want to give too much away about the story, but if we can, there is, as I said, there's a significant, another disappearance that is significant in the story. There's a hint of it at the beginning. At the very first chapter, we learn that not only has Lydia disappeared, but that her mother at some point in in time also went missing in their same small town. The same police officer actually, you know, was, was working a decade before and sort of remembers that case and mentions it to the family. So he knows a little bit about the family's history and that plays into everything that happens. It plays into uh, Hannah's life very, you know, very specifically, but also sort of into the family dynamic of of all of these family members. You've written the book from it sort of goes backwards and forwards in time. So obviously there's the current time period of Lydia's disappearance. And then we see James and Marilyn's, the beginning of their relationship. We see the children when they're younger. We see the aftermath. But specifically, we see the story from everybody's perspective. So we see it from all of the family's perspective. Why did you choose to write it in that way? Well, as I started to get to know these characters in this family, I realized that this was going to be a book that was very much about secrets and about the things that they don't say to each other or that they keep from each other um, on purpose or sometimes accidentally. And I knew that because each of these characters had so many things that they were hiding, it was going to be important for the reader to get to hear everybody's perspective. Um, There are a lot of cases in the book where two characters will have a conversation and they both hear very different things happening in the same conversation. And I wanted the reader to be able to hear both sides of that conversation, to hear how James would have heard the conversation and then to hear how his wife Marilyn would have heard the conversation so that they could understand how these two characters were not understanding each other. Um, In other words, since the characters were misunderstanding each other and keeping so many secrets, I wanted the reader to be able to understand everything and to to get all those secrets. And I think it also means that where I think that that sort of different perspectives of the characters comes over most strongly is gradually as the tragedy is unfolding, you know, the family gradually breaks down and we see that through the eyes of each of the characters. We see the changing of the relationships between all the characters. Yeah, it's very much a story, I think, about a family processing loss, about how that can sort of break a family apart, but can also maybe pull them back together. Um, I think that's really true in real life, too, that when, you know, a family goes through some kind of trauma, whether someone passes away suddenly or whether there's an illness or just whatever kind of family trauma happens, 
a lot of times what happens to the family is either they become really fractured because it's so hard to process that loss, it's so hard to deal with it and to know how to go on and to talk about these things, or sometimes it can be something that can pull the family closer together and get them talking about things, you know, um, it's almost sort of a shock process that causes everyone to bond together. Um, and that was something I was really interested in exploring with this family, um, how the dynamics would shift as they started to understand each other or misunderstand each other as, as the secrets started to come out. I'm J. Courtney Sullivan. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. I want to bring the title in at this point. The book's called Everything I Never Told You. And although the, you know, the focus is on Lydia and Lydia's disappearance, I mean, that title really, I mean, it refers to every character, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and that was one of the reasons I liked it. I'm so glad you brought it up because I'm, I'm actually really bad with titles. And usually when I write a short story, it has no title at the top. And I have to wait for my writer friends or people to suggest titles to me. And so, um, and, But I came up with this one on my own. Towards the, the end of the book, there's a, a line that the title echoes where Nate thinks about all the things that he would have wanted to tell his sister. And um, that struck me because it, it seemed like something that all of the characters might say to each other. There's so much that all the characters keep quiet about, sometimes because it's something that they're ashamed of or afraid of. Um, and then sometimes it's just things that they take for granted that they don't realize that other people are waiting to hear. You know, the cliche of that is, is like, I love you. You know, lots of people don't say that because they think, oh, it's, it's a given. Of course, you know how I feel about you. But generally, people really like to hear that. And so I liked that title because I think it really spoke to all the characters in the book. Yeah. I want to talk about why why the 1970s. It's set mainly in the the main events, the the disappearances taking place in 1977. Now, obviously, this is I mean, it's a story about a mixed family and about fitting in and about difference. But that could you know there are people literally as we speak now outside protesting in Ferguson. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> These things never go away. So why the 70s? Yeah, you're right. I mean, so when I started thinking about the characters and, and getting to know them and thinking about the issues that they were struggling with, a lot of those issues did seem to be especially poignant in the 70s. So one of them is the issue of race and culture, that they're an interracial family. And, and of course, there weren't quite as many of those in the 1970s. And at the time that James and Marilyn get married, in fact, interracial marriage is still illegal in some parts of the country. So that was part of it. And partly also the struggles that Marilyn, the mother, faces um, in sort of wanting to have a career and finding a lot of barriers in her path and and in sort of struggling over that. That was sort of a, a typical thing that I think a lot of women struggled with in the 50s when if they were in college in the 50s. But you're right. Those issues are still with us. Um, you can look at the headlines. Like you said, you know, at the moment, there are protests going on over race. It's certainly not a, an issue that we've tidily tied up and moved past at all. Um, certainly not here in the States. Partway through the, the writing process, um, in the very first draft, I was getting really bogged down in this idea that I was writing the 70s and that that was, was historical. And a really well-meaning advisor said, well, why don't you just set it you know, closer to the present time? Then you don't have to do any research. Um, you'll know all the details. And I thought, okay, that's a good idea. And I tried setting the story in the late 1990s. And it just it didn't work. Um, the issues certainly were still there, but I think that they were really particularly resonant for this family in the late 1970s because of the time period that the you know that Marilyn would have gone to school, because of the time period in which then she and James would have gotten married, and I think particularly because 
that was a time where one generation of women were seeing their daughters have lots of opportunities open up to them that they really had missed out on, you know, that their chance really had kind of gone and that they were not going to be able to have those opportunities and they were going to watch their daughters go forward and get opportunities. And I think that must have been a really bittersweet moment for them. So that's how I ended up picking the, the time period of the 1970s. It's also the time of, I don't think it's, it's never really explicitly mentioned in the book, apart from, I think, a reference to, general reference to people going out to war and, and one explicitly racial slur. But it's also the aftermath of the Vietnam War as well, Mm -hmm. which I thought hangs over the book. I think you're right. It's also, I mean, I think the the Vietnam War, probably more than any other war in the United States, uh, maybe World War II, but caused a lot of, I think, awareness of Asians and then also a lot of discomfort with them too, I think, you know, because a lot of vets came back and were really traumatized by what they had gone through. Unfortunately, have been a few times that I've been out on the street and vet men who are vets are out on the street and they're clearly traumatized even, you know, decades later and they'll shout things at me like, go back to Vietnam. And I just think about how deeply that really scarred the nation's psyche, I think. It also, I think the 1970s is also the middle of the Cold War and um, a time period where I think, you know, you think about that idea of Cold War. It's a lot of things that aren't being said. It's a lot of secrecy. Um, it's a lot of sort of quietness and the idea that there could be things that we weren't allowed to talk about or that we weren't comfortable talking about. And I think that that fits in with the sort of ethos of this family as well, that there are these things that can harm you if you talk about them. So we're going to talk hopefully about your own experiences and, and your own family growing up in terms of, you know, researching, for want of a better word, this book. Yeah. The family in this book is a mixed family. Yours wasn't. Why? was it important do you think to add that extra layer of difference well i think that a lot of the stories that we hear about asian americans so far in literature tend to be a particular narrative which is sort of the immigrant family and they don't fit in and that implies in some ways a cohesiveness to that family you know at least they're they all sort of understand what each other are going through and i wanted to fracture this family even more um that makes me sound terribly sadistic but i think it's one of the things that writers do is they, they get their characters in really hard spots so i wanted to even make this family sort of divided among itself that there were going to be issues that even the father and the mother weren't really understanding each other on the other part of that although both of my parents were ethnically chinese my husband is white and so i have we have a little boy who's part Asian and part white. And so I think about these things a lot. I just sort of think about when you've got two cultures in your background like that, or or more than two cultures, just how you kind of integrate all those things into your life and the different sort of ways you can be pooled. Um, Something that I spend a lot of my time thinking about, actually. There's this misunderstanding throughout their marriage that really only comes out towards the end of the book over the very idea of difference. I mean, James wants to, you know, he just wants to fit in. And there's this thing overhanging them all the time, although Marilyn is not aware that he he heard it about what Marilyn's mother says. But Marilyn's idea of difference has always been different. I mean, she loves James because... He is different. She's always wanted to be different, to get away from her background and to be as different as possible, hasn't she? Yeah, I think um, in some ways Marilyn's got a little bit of a privilege that she maybe doesn't realize that for her to be different can be a really good thing. Yeah. Um, So it's something that she really strives for. You know, it's her way of stepping away from, you know, the sort of traditional role of women being a housekeeper and just taking care of the children and not having a, a career. And so for her, you know, she's able as a white woman, I think, to think of being different, standing out as something 
that's positive. Um, and for James, of course, coming from a somewhat different place, he's already standing out and his struggle really has always been to overcome that difference or to get people to not see him as different. And because Marilyn's mother is sort of disapproved of the marriage sort of from the very beginning, like you said, she says something uh, at the time that James and Marilyn are getting married and um, that remark kind of burrows into both of them. It's like a little thorn that both of them sort of carry around, but they view it in very, very different ways. There's this one really striking moment where there's an argument and she uses the word kowtow in the argument, which I found it's almost pretty much the only time there's ever any Chinese used in the book. Yeah, it's such a, a loaded term, I think, even even now, that it's it implies a lot of things about Asians, I think, that we they're really embedded in that word that we don't necessarily think of when we use it. But it's, you know, it, it, it implies, you know, this kowtowing, this idea of bowing down and obeisance, and um, it, it's got a lot of nuance in there um, that can carry a lot of sort of symbolic weight, and it does for both of them in that conversation. She doesn't think about those associations, but James is kind of hypersensitive to them, and, and immediately Immediately, that word comes in between them as a sort of a, a wedge pushing them farther apart. That's often, you know, how we react as humans, right? A lot of times something is really unpleasant. We're like, well, let's just kind of not deal with it and see if maybe it'll go away. And of course, it very seldom works out. And I think especially in terms of race, that happens a lot. It certainly happens here in the States. There's a lot of times when people will say, well, I don't see race or we're all equal. And the problem, of course, is that that sort of uh, obliterates a lot of differences that are very real and are very there and allows you to just say, oh, well, I don't see race. I'm racially colorblind. I don't know if Stephen Colbert has as much of a presence over in the UK as, as he does here. He, he's got a, a little running sort of shtick where anytime he talks about a racial story, he'll say something like, I don't see race. And then he'll say, people tell me I'm white because, and then he'll say something funny after that. But, you know, I think that's often how people respond with the best of intentions. What they mean to say is, I don't think those differences matter. But a lot of times, if you just say they don't exist, you end up not talking about things that actually are kind of important. And the person most likely to say, I don't see race, I don't think difference matters, are obviously the people least affected by those differences. <laughs> exactly. There's, there is sort of a privilege inherent in saying that. And it's it's so interesting. And as you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of a lot of talk going on right now about race um, due to sort of what's going on in Ferguson and, and elsewhere in the country, the protests that are happening. And of course, the only people who get to say, I don't see race, are the people who are in the racial minority, right, who get to not think about it. Whereas if you are in the minority, you're pretty much aware of that all the time. There's no way you cannot think about it. There's no way you cannot see it. listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and today I'm talking to Celeste Ng and we're talking about her book Everything I Never Told You. And Celeste, I want to move on in the in the second part of the show to talk about yourself and your own experiences. You also grew up in small town America, didn't you? So let's talk about what that experience was like. 
Yeah, I grew up in suburbs of big cities, which is an interesting experience because there's sort of the big city with the big buildings and it's nearby. But where I grew up, it's small and neighborhoody. So I was born in Pittsburgh, which is a city in Pennsylvania. And um, Pittsburgh is a decent sized city on its own. But the suburb that I grew up in was very blue collar and very predominantly white Christian. My family was one of the very few Asian families in the neighborhood. When I was in elementary school, it was a very small school and only four grades in it and probably about 200 kids, but there was one black girl and one Asian girl and that was me and everyone else in the school was white. an odd experience to have growing up, just where you look different from everyone else and your family stands out from everyone else's family. And then I, when I got a bit older, I moved to a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, where again, Cleveland is a pretty decent sized city. But where I lived, the neighborhood that I grew up in, Shaker Heights, is a little suburb and it's very neighborhoody and lots of kids walk to school and things like that. And um, that suburb was much more racially diverse. It was, um, I think, something like 55% white, 44% black, and 1% other. But I was part of that other. So there still weren't very many Asians. For the novel, um, when I decided to set the story in a small town in Ohio, in some ways I was thinking about my own roots and just thinking where could I put them where this family would feel somewhat isolated, where they would have even less contact with other sort of people of their background than I did growing up. And that's sort of how I ended up making them in small town Ohio. You say being like, you know, the only person of Chinese extraction in a school. It sounds like a a really stupid question, but did you always consciously feel like you were different? I don't think it's a stupid question at all, actually, because it's something that I think most people don't experience. So my husband is a tall white man, and he thought he understood what I was talking about, where I'm like, it's weird if you know that you look different than everyone else. But he didn't really understand it until we went to visit family in Hong Kong. And we were on the um, the MTR, which is their subway line, and it's extremely busy. And he all of a sudden looked around and went, oh, no one else here looks like me. <laughs> and you know, it's a very disorienting experience. So I don't think it's a silly question at all. I think the best I can explain it is not that I was always aware of being different, but that I was intermittently re-realized or re-remembered that I was different. You know, at home, I was with my family and sometimes we had Chinese food and sometimes we had hot dogs and hamburgers. And, um, you know, my dad really liked to go to Wendy's, which is a fast food restaurant we've got here. Um, But then I would go to school and I'd be with my friends and doing things. And there would only be particular moments where I would sort of re-remember, oh, my family is really different here. So if we had a substitute teacher, they always stumbled when they got to my last name, which is Ng, spelled N-G. But it's very different from all the other last names, and it's still one that a lot of people aren't familiar with. And so there's this moment where they'd sort of struggle over it, and it's just a little reminder like, oh, you're different, because they pronounced everyone else's name, but yours was confusing. Or there would be times when People, and this still happens to me and to virtually everyone else I know who, um, who's an Asian or otherwise in a minority, they'll say, oh, where are you from? Where were you born? And I'd say, well, I was born here in Pittsburgh. And they'd say, oh, but, but where are you from? And I'm like, well, I'm from here. And then they'd say, well, but where are you really from? And this sort of dialogue that happens, it's like saying, no, 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 like, I know you're different. Tell me where you're from. There's little reminders, I think, that you you don't in everyday life feel like you don't belong, but then every now and then you remember that other people must see you quite differently. There's a, I borrowed some of these bits to put in the novel. Um, there's a moment where Lydia is thinking about the school photograph where, you know, you see the school photograph, and there's one head of black hair in the whole classroom. 
and you go, wait, what's that person doing here? Then you realize that that's you. Um, it's a little bit like that, I think. That's sort of the best explanation I could come up with. What other elements of the story came out of real life? Well, I think as a writer, maybe all writers are like this, I'm a little bit of a magpie and I pick up all the little bits that I want and I sort of make them into some new amalgamation. The plot of the story itself isn't really based in real life at all. The very seed of the story of a, a little girl falling into the, a girl falling into the water um, came from an anecdote that my husband told me when he was, I think, eight years old or so, a schoolmate of his, pushed his own little sister into a lake. And her parents were nearby and they pulled her out and, and she was fine. But I, for some reason, kept thinking about that, maybe because I'm a terrible swimmer. And I kept thinking, well, what would it have been like for that girl to fall into the water? And what was this brother-sister dynamic like that he would have pushed her into the water? And then what was it going to be like after she had been pulled back out of the water? You know, was she going to hold this against him for the rest of her life? And as I started to think about that girl falling into the water, it changed, of course. Lydia, the daughter in the book, is, is older. She's 16. But that little seed came from real life. And then it started to take on a life of its own. And I sort of embellished it here and there with little bits that came from real life. So one of them, obviously, is the experience of the family being in an area where there are very few Asians. That was something that I experienced growing up. And I try to draw on that. Um, another is Marilyn's cookbook. The mother in the family has got a Betty Crocker cookbook that has all these sort of sexist little directions to women written into the recipes. Things like, does anything make you feel, you know, happier about yourself than baking bread? Or, um, you know, pity the man who's never come home to a pie. My favorite one was, you have to know how to cook an egg six different ways to satisfy your whole family. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You know, it, it behooves a good wife to know how to make an egg behave in six different ways. So those were all um, those are all real quotes. And the cookbook that I gave the mother in the story is actually my own mother's Betty Crocker cookbook. She got it soon after she emigrated to the United States. And um, that was the cookbook that she used when I was growing up. That was the cookbook that I learned to cook from when we we're baking cookies or, you know, roasting a turkey or whatever. And it wasn't until I was much older that I actually looked at the text around the recipes and saw all of those things and I was so amused and horrified by them at the same time. Um, and so I wanted to take that cookbook and put it into the novel to give a sense of what the feeling about what women should be doing and what was supposed to be important to them was at that time period. And so that was a little bit that I stole from real life as well. Maybe the other big piece that I took from real life with Marilyn sort of wanting to go into the sciences. My own mother actually is a chemist. Um. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. She got a PhD and she did research and she taught at the university. But I saw a lot of what it was like for her to be a woman in the sciences and in a field that's even now really still dominated by men. And I wanted to put a little bit of that sense into the book as well. And so Marilyn's sort of feelings about how the men treat her when she's in, uh, at the university and she's trying to take chemistry classes and they're sort of patronizing her. Um, or later there's a moment where she's trying to get a job as a lab assistant and the person says, oh, I didn't think you'd want to do that, you know, since you have a husband and children. Those were the similar flavor of things to things that I saw my mother experience. And I wanted to sort of take that and put that into the novel as well. I want to talk a bit about your parents, because they were, they were both scientists. So if I understand correctly, your father worked for NASA at one point. Yes, he, um, he did research for them. Um, when, that's actually why we moved to Cleveland. There's actually a NASA research facility um, in Cleveland, and he did work there. But they were both Chinese immigrants, so they both came to the U.S. So you mentioned that you know, this was the period of the Cold War in the, in the first part. So what was that experience like for them coming over as, as scientists to the U.S. during a period of time when obviously, you know, China was a... Uh, did they come from China? Or was... They came from Hong Kong, actually. They came from Hong Kong. Okay, so Hong Kong obviously was a, a, a British protector at that time, so they didn't come from communist China then. Yeah, but but still, I mean, I think that there are similarities. So my mother, and it's funny to me, still has a lot of Britishisms in her in her language because she grew up, you know, um, when Hong Kong was was still a British colony, um, and then my was born in China and moved there when he was an adolescent. Um, but I think you know, Hong Kong is a really interesting place because it's it's got that British heritage, but of course it's also got this Chinese heritage as well. Um, it's got a little bit of a split personality. And both of them came over in the very late 1960s, and they came over as students. And so I think for them, maybe the experience of being a student was a little bit different. I don't know if it made it easier or not, actually. I should ask my mother. But because a lot of the graduate students were coming from different countries, they made friends with a lot of the sort of international students, and they were living in grad student housing. And so their neighbors were also graduate students. And so they made a lot of friends that way. And I think that in some ways helped ease the transition for them into the country. But I also know that they were always, I think, very sensitive to the fact that they were, you know, of Chinese descent and that they might be looked at in a different way. So growing up, when my sister and I were growing up, um, I think they always wanted us just to be aware that other people might look at us differently and to be prepared for that and to keep in mind that what we did, people might look at what we did and then, you know, extrapolate that to other Asians. You know, in other words, we were a place where people would, would make a stereotype. And so we had to sort of be aware of how we were carrying ourselves. Sometimes they talked to us about it explicitly and other times it was more implicit. But I do, I do think that they were really aware of that, both from as they, you know, were working their way through student life and then as my sister and I were growing up. And that sort of pressure to be almost a role model, I mean, that's that's a big responsibility. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a, sort of a, a common feeling often for a lot of minorities, that there's this idea that people are going to decide that they're going to form their impressions about your whole group based on you. And it does put a lot of responsibility on you. Um, you know, there's the feeling that in order to succeed, you have to not just do well, you have to do great. You know, you have to be 10 times better because otherwise people may look askance at you. You know, it's almost as if people are looking for reasons to discount what you do. Certainly not always true. It's not, not that everyone is doing that, but you are always aware, I think, that there's a possibility that people will make judgments about you. I'm Ben Goldacre, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This is your first novel. You've written short stories, as you've mentioned, and for various other publications and things, but what was, what was your first novel like? <laughs> well, I guess this is the first real novel I um, had started writing. Yeah, well, when I, you know, when I was a kid, I always started writing, and so I think I probably wrote what I thought was my first novel at probably about age seven. It was probably all of like maybe three pages. And then as I got older, I, you know, was thirteen or fourteen, I would write these eighty-page stories that didn't have a plot and think that I had written a novel. Um, but this is the first one that I really, you know, wrote since I became serious about writing and and had really started publishing stories and really kind of taking the craft seriously. And it took a while. I got a master's degree in creative writing, and um, I started the novel at the very end of that program, and it took me about six years to finish it, working on and off, sometimes more than others, but it was a very long process. It took a lot of drafts, and uh, each draft sort of went through a big change. The story stayed the same throughout all those drafts, but I was really trying to figure out the structure of the novel, how to move back and forth in time, how to make the connections between the parents' generation and the children's generation clear. So it definitely took a lot of revising as I went along the way. The book's just come out in the beginning of November in the UK, but it's been out... When did it come out in the US? It was sort of the beginning of the summer. Uh, it came out at the very, very end of June, yeah. How has it been received so far? It's, it's been really fortunate, and the reception has been really positive, I think. Um, the, it got reviewed in a lot of places, and the reviewers generally really liked it, and it seems like it's connecting with readers as well, which is, is really great. So I'm kind of stunned by my good fortune. I don't, I don't know how this happened. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. <laughs> 